If I can do it, what's your excuse? What's holding you back? What's stopping you? Go on and do it. What's there to lose? If I can do it, what's your excuse? I'm the blind blogger. What's your excuse? Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is another episode of What's Your Excuse? And I am your host, the blind blogger, Maxwell Ivy. And uh, we're going to have a great conversation today. And I'm really happy that y'all are going to be with us here again today. I want to mention our sponsors. And the first is Blueberry, which is the word Blueberry, but you take out the letter E's. And they provide not only financial, but technical support for this podcast, for the Shredding for Gold podcast hosted by Emily Trepanier, and for the podcast network, which you can find over at wyexcuse.com slash shows. Uh, We wouldn't be able to keep doing this without them. And I really do advise y'all to look into them if you're considering starting a podcast or you've grown unhappy with your current hosting provider and you want to switch. And then the other sponsor, uh, very indebted to Chip and Pam Edwards and the team at Create My Voice. They are the ones who created the invocation and, and they work behind the scenes on my audio branding so that you can go to your Alexa or Google or Siri and say, play what's your excuse. And if you're looking to make sure your podcast or your blog or your creative work is properly found on those wearable mobile devices, then I strongly advise you to get a hold with Chip. I'll include a link to create my voice in the show notes. And he loves having conversations about the importance of invocations and audio branding. So I do hope y'all will check him out. So today I'm going to be having a conversation with my new friend. Her name is Donna Jodhan. And she is an award-winning vision loss coach, an author, a advocate for the visually impaired and for disabilities in general, or the disabled. She is also a law school graduate and host of two podcasts, Ask Donna and Dining with Donna. And you can find her at DonnaJodhan.com or at sterlingcreations.ca. And I will definitely include the links to her websites and uh, anything else of hers that y'all need to be able to find, like her books or audio books, books, et cetera. So, Donna, uh, thank you, and welcome to What's Your Excuse? Thank you for having me, Max. I'm very, very grateful. Well, I'm very grateful, too, and I also want to give a quick shout-out to our friend Michael Babcock at uh, yourpayown.com. He he has a wonderful podcast on technology and accessibility, and uh, he was the one who introduced us, so I want to make sure that we mention his website, and some of y'all might go over there and check it out and learn some things about how the visually impaired approach computers, the Internet, Android, Apple, all these technological things you probably wanted to know but never had anybody ask so y'all go check out Michael so uh, when I do these interviews or conversations I like to find one question or one topic that gets us off to a good start and you know Donna with you there's something about you that I honestly don't know anybody else 
who has uh, vision impairment or experienced vision loss that can speak to this particular subject because it comes up, up quite often. You know, people have asked me, Max, if if you could get your vision back, would you want it back? And you're one of the few, few people I know of who was born with very little vision, lived your life for a while with perfect vision, and now have uh, severe vision loss again to where you depend on your screen readers just as much as I do. So I'd love for you to talk about those experiences in your life. Thank you. Um, well, you know, I would like to say that I have seen both sides of the fence in that I was born with very little vision, enough vision to see some color, some shadows, the sun, the grass, you know, the sand, the ocean, but it was very blurry um, for quite a few years. Um, I was able to find my way around, but, you know, like with the use of a cane. And then as a late teenager, you know, someone in my late teens, I received a cornea transplant from a young lady whose name was Donna. She was 16 years old, not much younger than me. She was in a car accident and I was the recipient of one of her corneas. When I received that cornea, I had great functional vision. It wasn't perfect, but it was great functional vision. And my whole world opened up. And I, especially when it came to color, the colors were so vivid and the faces were so vivid. And I'll never forget the first day that I was able to see the faces of my mom and dad. And I realized I looked just like my mom. I, I ran into the washroom. I looked in the mirror. I saw myself. I was so shocked that I could see myself. And after that, things just took off. I was able to read the headlines in the newspapers. I was able to go downtown with my best friend and we would check out all the stores and the windows. And it, it was amazing. You know, <clears throat> she taught me how to play basketball. I, I learned how to roller skate. I learned to ice skate. Like my whole world was turned into a different world. I mean, I could read, I could write. And I had this vision for Oh, gosh, almost 25 years. And then one day, it all came crashing down when I had a terrible retinal detachment in three places. And I lost almost all of it, which is where I'm at right now. So I've had to readjust. And I would say, thank goodness, I learned how to read Braille when I was much younger before I got my, my functional vision. And that saved me because I was able to label everything and readjust myself. It took about two years to readjust myself back to from whence I came, you know, as I would say. Um, I can't control what happens to my sight. It's almost gone. I've been told medically there is not much hope for me to regain the functional vision that I had. I've accepted that. And it's, 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 it is what it is. So 
I, I've seen both sides of the fence. That's all I can tell you. It's the best way I can describe it. Okay, so you mentioned that you were able to readjust to your your latest vision loss, but you said even with knowing Braille, it took you two years. Now, was most of that time the result of practical changes or was most of that the time the result of having to readjust emotionally even though you had been, been blind before? I think it was emotionally. It was a fact that I... I had to endure a, a big loss that things that I did before I could not do. Like like a lot of the sporting activities, I needed sighted assistance to help me. Like when I, when I went skating after I lost most of my vision, I had to use sighted assistance because I didn't have the confidence to skate around the ice rink. So I had to depend on sighted assistance. And for example, going shopping, again, I had to depend on sighted assistance because for whereas when I had my, my high functioning vision, I could see the packages and, and, and read the labels. I couldn't do that anymore. So it took me two years to really readjust my psyche, readjust myself and find ways to cope that this is what happened. Right. And how did your your family or your close friends uh, deal with your vision loss, both uh, as a young child and then later in life? I think when I got, okay, um, let's deal first with, I call it stage one, when I had very little vision. I don't think my family really made much of it. They realized I couldn't see very well at all. And they were very, very helpful. My cousins, my brothers, my parents, my granny, they all accepted what was going on. And they allowed me to really, you know, like it was, I called it born free. I was free to do whatever I want. And then when I got my high functioning vision, they were all quite excited. Um, Not as excited as I would hope that they would be, but they were to some extent. And it took them a while to realize that for me, I had to satisfy my curiosity to see what they all looked like, you know? <laughs> so that was a big adjustment. But And then when I, I lost it, I'm not sure if they really realized that I lost it, <laughs> you know? Okay. They've been a very accepting family, a very accepting bunch of friends and everything like that. And they've never really um, been affected by my stage one vision, stage two, and now back to stage one. So I would say that I've been blessed in many ways by family and friends who really accepted everything as, as it came. Right. And that leads me to a question that I'm going to ask based on people who are visually impaired that I have interviewed from Canada. Yeah. It seems to me that Canadian parents or Canadian people in general have a lot easier time dealing with somebody losing their vision 
than most of the same people I have interviewed here in the, from the U.S. It seems like there's a lot fewer Canadian family members that restricted their children and tried to put them in a bubble wrap than there are uh, American parents of disabled children who did want to put them in bubble wrap and store them away somewhere. You know, this is the first time I'm hearing um, this type of sentiment being expressed, but I don't know. I mean, I'm not I'm not sure why that would be, but I think I grew up in an environment where it just they just accepted the fact that I couldn't see and they yeah. with it, you know, like there was no big thing about it. I mean, if they felt anything, they never told me openly. And I'm sure they had their, their moments of anxiety for me doing things, but it didn't really matter at the end of the day. Right. Well, it's just an observation from my, my times interviewing a lot of people, you know, that it just mm-hmm. seems to be the case to me. Okay. Uh, so, all right. So uh, now when you attended or started attending college, was that during stage two when you had vision? Um, part of stage one, part of stage two, you know, like I started off college with at stage one. And then it was during that time that I got my, my stage two vision. And so I was, you know, I started with little, got a whole walk and then, um, it lasted throughout college and university. Right. And what are some of the challenges you've had to deal with as far as getting your education? I mean, uh, I, we, we all know how difficult COVID seems to have made things for everybody in the world. But uh, even before COVID, what was it like uh, trying to achieve an advanced degree like um, the legal studies that you were involved in? The main thing is, and and I I continually grumble about this, is that we are being left out when it comes to making online accessibility a reality. For some odd reason, developers and designers, their heads are in the sky. They don't quite understand when you say, I can't see I need to use screen reading software. They're still very much behind when it comes to understanding. There's an attitudinal barrier there, I would say, that continues to irritate and disappoint me personally because I don't know what is the right answer to trying to convince these people that you cannot leave us behind, you you know, the level of accessibility and inclusivity is still very much in the dark, if I should say so, because I'd like to see, I'd like to see more um, online systems be made more accessible. That was the biggest challenge when I did my legal studies, because, you know, I had to fight to get things done, but I will tell you at the same time that where I studied at the University of London, England, 
And I chose this university deliberately because of their attitude towards accessibility. I think they understood, they got it, they realized it, and they did the best that they could, you know, to make things accessible. The online process was not always um, easy going. I had to have a sighted friend to help me out. But coming back to responding to your question, it's accessibility. It's still a, a challenge when doing online studies. Right. Now, again, this is from my own experience. I see, I find that the biggest challenge to inclusion when it comes to software and websites is that the designers are trying to design for a wide variety of abilities and they will put in all sorts of bells and whistles and fancy options that 90% of the people who use that software are never going to use. But the fact that they're there gets in our way and makes it harder for us to use the parts of their software that would be helpful to us. I agree with that. Like they think they're doing a huge favor when, you know, they put in all these so-called bells and whistles, but in essence, these bells and whistles, are additional barriers for us to overcome. And the other thing we need to understand is that every time there is a software update, access technology is left behind. And then the developers of access technology now has to find ways to, you know, come back into step with mainstream software. You know, I think we need to explain that to people. You see... For those of you who do not use a screen reader or don't depend on one at least, when the Windows software is updated or the uh, Apple software is updated, the devices, the programs that convert text to speech have to be retaught. Every time there's an update, someone or a huge team of someone's have to go and rewrite the code of the screen reading software so it knows how to deal with the changes. And that sometimes can take hours or days or months. And sometimes they never fix the things that they've changed. No, no. And, and that's very true. Like an example is I used to use this remote management piece of software called TeamViewer. Lovely piece of software, but since they, you know, um, included add-ons into it and everything, it's completely inaccessible. And we've spoken to them several times, and they haven't fixed it. It's been about two years now. They haven't fixed it. No. And I was speaking to uh, David Goldstein, who hosts I Can't See You, and he was one of the hosts of this year's Believe You Can talent show, and he told me that Zoom did an update uh, just before they were going live that whenever they went to the share screen option, which they had to use in order for the people in the virtual audience to see each of us performers, it knocked out the screen reader altogether. And they ended up, they, they wrangled some sighted assistance at the last minute, but it was, uh, it was not fun. Now, since then, Zoom has fixed that problem. And I have to admit that Zoom is one of the most accessible products I use. Uh, a lot of the time I wish some of these 
online media companies or some of these organizations that need an online media platform would just go, hey, we're just going to use Zoom. Let's not try to build our own. Let's not try to customize our own. Let's just use one that's working. And, of course, the reason Zoom works is because they understand we don't have an access to a mouse click, and they provide us with keyboard uh, command combinations for everything we need to do while we're running Zoom. So that's a really, it's, it's really cool to have at least one place you can go and have a meeting and not have to worry about accessibility. And I agree. I think Zoom is very accessible, but there is another um, platform. I think it's Teams. They're not terribly accessible, although I've been told that in recent times they have become more accessible. But there is an example that they're not fully accessible. Right. And programs like uh, like Blackboard or Whiteboard or whatever that one's called that they use for classroom meetings, yeah. When I hear that one's a real nightmare, but, you know, people find ways. And I think, you know, maybe you could talk a little bit about how as a, as a visually impaired person, you have to be a, uh, a brilliant uh, problem solver. I mean. You're right. It's, it's not for the faint of heart. You have to find <laughs> what I call workarounds. Yes. Oh, and. You have to be quick on your feet. You have to be thinking a little bit ahead. And, you know, there are some people you cannot, no matter how hard you try, you cannot convince them that you can't do certain things. They don't understand it. So sometimes rather than spending a lot of energy trying to explain things to them, I simply go and find a workaround because it it's stressful. It's it's nerve wracking at times when they don't get it, and I don't expect everybody to get it. Most people will not get it because they don't know someone who with a vision impairment. So if you don't know someone with a vision impairment, or you've never worked with someone with a vision impairment, I don't expect you to be able to get it. Although some people have very innate or what. I, I call native senses that they're able to understand but too many people don't and this is where you've got to go into your workarounds and become extremely good problem solvers or else you're going to spend a lot of your time simply being you know left behind or you want to be suffering from stress right so just to remind y'all, I'm speaking with Donna Jodhan, and she's an award-winning vision loss coach, author, advocate, recent law school graduate, and host of two podcasts, Ask Donna and Dining with Donna, and you can find her at DonnaJodhan.com. And uh, I'd like to mention a company here. They are not a sponsor of the show, but they've been very great supportive of me as far as being able to do better with my work. It's a company called Less Annoying CRM, and it's what they call a content or relationship management software program. It is very highly screen reader friendly. It's low cost, easy to use. Even I was able to start using it, and if you can't use it on your own, they've got great customer support people. So Considering we were talking about the frustrations, I thought I'd mention a company that's getting it, getting it right. And so 
Where did your advocacy start and what are some of the accomplishments that you're most proud of as far as being able to get things changed for other visually impaired people? I think my advocacy started when for two things. One, when I realized that in order to make a difference, we had to speak up as Canadians because so many websites were not accessible, especially the federal government websites. That's when my advocacy really started. And then I always have had a passion that I'd like to make the future of blind and vision impaired kids a better future than mine. And that is where it started. So I think for me, the two greatest achievements that I am, well, I would say I am proud of, but then on on the other hand, I sometimes think, why did I have to fight so darn hard to ensure that federal government websites were made accessible And that we had to fight so darn hard to convince the Canadian government that they needed to enact legislation from Accessible Canada Act. So the first, um, it was called a landmark victory in 2010 when, well, we started our our, um, legal challenge to the Canadian government in 2006, I and a small group of associates we took them to court in 2010 we won our case they decided to appeal that decision but they lost in 2012 and to me that was one of the greatest achievements for me personally along with my team but then again the sadness is that why why did we have to do this in order to get what was legitimately our rights, to have our rights recognized, protected, and legitimized. Why did we have to fight for this? I still don't have an answer. (laughs) And the second greatest achievement for me was when I founded um, a nonprofit organization at the end of 2014 called Barrier Free Canada. And our main objective was to lobby the Canadian government to enact legislation so that uh, Canada could become an accessible country. Or believe it or not, this is a developed country, but we were 25 years behind the United States as far as enacting legislation for accessibility. That legislation was enacted on July I think July the 12th or whatever, in 2019, it was called the Accessible Canada Act. But still, Canada is struggling when it comes to accessibility. And, you know, some people may disagree with me. The the act is in place, but now, you know, federal entities and federal government departments have to file their work plans for accessibility. And, you know, all the different infrastructure um, props, as I would call them, that need to be there in order to make this act effective 
we're not going to see real results until maybe 2040 because they have a long time. <laughs> you know, so I'm saying that this is a country that really needs to keep pushing. And we cannot expect the governments or any government at any level in this country to do it on their own. We as a community have to push them to do it. And if we don't push them to do it, it won't be done. Right. So what did you learn about the process of advocating for these laws in Canada, about yourself? Let's say that again. I said, what did you learn about yourself? What lessons can you share with other people from uh, from your experiences uh, advocating for these laws? What I learned about myself is that I had to develop patience. I had to follow through with my passion. I had to develop a very thick skin. Because trust me when I tell you that when we first launched the Charter Challenge against the Canadian government in 2006, I was attacked personally and professionally from many quarters. And I had to learn to deal with it. I had to learn to put it behind me because I knew that if I started something, I had to complete it. And as I was saying to my mom the other day, if you honestly think that you are right about something, go for it. If you're not sure, don't do it. And people would quickly see that you are stumbling and, 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 and stammering and they'll take advantage of that. So all I'm saying is, when you decide to go into advocacy, it is not for the faint of heart. You got to be very, very sure as to what you're doing. And if at any time you feel that this is not for you, give it up. Give it up and leave because you don't want to be, you know, constantly be, be knocked down. I mean, not everything you do is going to work out. No. But whatever you choose to do, choose it carefully. <clears throat> choose your battles. You're not going to win the war, but you're going to win some battles. Choose which ones you want to win and go for it. Yeah, now we talked before we started recording about uh, patience and accepting the lack of control. Is there, you know, given how so many people in the world's lives have been affected by things that they have no control over. Is there anything you can share with them that will help them deal better emotionally with all the upheaval we're going through and will probably continue to go through? I think for me, the important, one of the important things is that you got to discover or realize what you can control and what you cannot control. So, for example, you cannot control people's attitudes. You could try to change it, but you can't, at the end of the day, you cannot control what other people think. You can control what you think. You can control what you do. And that's the important thing. What I do and what I think is what I can control. But what other people think and what other people do I cannot control that. All I can do is 
find what I call workarounds to deal with what I cannot control. Right. Um, in my family, my dad used to have a saying. He would. He said, you know, there are going to be people you can't persuade or convince. And when you run across those people, the best thing to do is to either avoid them uh, or tell them a story. So <laughs> he, he believed that a good story could overcome a lot of objections. And he was a very good storyteller. So um, I like how you say decide what uh, you can control and what you can't control and focus on the things you actually have some influence over. The other thing, too, and I, I think your dad is, is right, is that if you find that there is a particular person that, you know, causes you a problem or you can't seem to get through to them, you've got to make up your mind. It's, I, I, I sort of um, give this comparison. It's like trying to surf a wave in the ocean, Okay. Now, this wave is coming towards you. you got to make up your mind. Can I jump over this wave? Or can I, or, you know, am I not going to be able to do that? It's like the individual. So if I think I can deal with this individual or jump over the wave, I jump. If I feel that I cannot deal with this individual, I either turn my back on, on, on this individual, turn my back on this wave and swim towards the shore or go under the wave. You're never going to find that you will get along with every single person. That ain't going to happen. So you got to decide. <clears throat> and this comes with maturity. It comes with growing up. It comes with taking the extra time to understand people. You're not going to understand everybody, you know, but do your best. Some people you get along with and some you don't. And you shouldn't feel guilty if you don't get along with a person. We're not all meant to get along together, are we? You know, I guess that's probably true. But uh, I get the sense that me and you probably get along with a much higher percentage than the people we don't. So <laughs> That's true. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about your coaching, uh, when that started, uh, what kind of training you have, or if, if you're basically on a lived experience, and what people could expect if they were to hire you as their coach. So I've based my um, vision loss coaching on my lived experience or lived experience. I have a lot of live lived experience. I've done a lot of things in, in, in my life as an author, an advocate, a blogger. I've done a lot of writing, audio writing, writing of articles. I have done podcasting. I've done dinner mystery um, evenings. I've written audio mystery. So I have a wide range of things that I have done that I've sort of brought them together to help people, to motivate them, to encourage them, to get them to the point where they're not going to depend on their vision loss to get them through life. They're going to be able to use their vision loss to get through life, not to hinder them. 
And what can they expect from me? They can expect someone who is going to motivate them, encourage them, teach them how to develop their patience, their passion, and how to find so-called workarounds because you're not going to have a straight path all the time. You're going to have to have quite a lot of deviations in order to deal with obstacles. And I I think that, you know, COVID has really changed a lot of things, you know, uh, socially, mentally. I um, I've developed something called the mental stretch because I feel that, for goodness sakes, you know, we have stretches for your arms, your legs, your neck, your stomach, your back. Why not the mental stretch? And why not use the mental stretch to help you get through your day's life or your day's work? <clears throat> and I base my mental stretch on using a different sense every week, like sense of hearing, sense of touch. You'd be amazed that that using a different sense every week, how it helps to, you know, what I call the MIC principle. It is being able to clear your mind and your imagination of cobwebs and clutter and to spark and stimulate your creative juices. It's it's something I really, really believe in that I've been using for a few years now and really depend or depended on it throughout COVID. Still am depending on it. I think it's a marvelous way to deal with, with stresses and anxiety. And right. you know, it eventually boils down to, you know, dealing with, with your sight loss or finding ways to deal with your sight loss. Right. And just so y'all know, this mental stretch is also a part of her regular Ask Donna podcast. It's a final segment that I believe is uh, is almost like the dessert after a good meal. You know, it's a... Uh, <laughs> It is very, it has, it, it packs a lot into it. And um, so y'all should definitely, when you check out her podcast or both of them, you should definitely stay around to the end because in Ask Donna, there's the mental stretch. And in Dining with Donna, there are the, I don't know what she calls the segment, but there are her, her workarounds to deal with kitchen mistakes, failures, or disasters. That's right. Yep, yep. And she's already taught me a couple of things I had no idea about, and and I'm just I'm just a simple feller, you know. Who knows? So, <laughs> uh, so when you are working with somebody who's had vision loss, does it affect your uh, approach? Does it does the age of the person as far as when they lost their vision? Does that have any? any impact on, on how you have to approach them or do people losing their vision in their teens deal with it better than people who are in their fifties or sixties or how does that work? Yes. And no, like, um, you know, I've, I've worked with teenagers who, you know, they've lost their vision and I'm telling you, they're so angry. There's, you know, they go into depression because, you know, the teenage years are very interesting years in that those are the years where they socialize more and they come out more. They want to self-identify. They want to develop their own identity and then bingo, they lose their vision. 
it can be a big blow to them. Many of them have difficulty dealing with it. Um, some adapt to it very readily, but it's a difficult time for the teens. For those in their 50s and 60s, again, it's a different type of person you're dealing with. It's a person who has lived quite a few years fully sighted and now they've gone and lost it and they're sort of at a loss like, well, what do I do? How do I cope? Can I live a life? You know, <clears throat> what's left for me? So you have both ends of the spectrum, right? You right. just sort of sit down and figure out what is this person wanting? How can I help this person? How can I make, you know, like encourage them to understand that you've not lost everything. You've just had a change and now you've got to find a way to deal with this change. And this is a change that you can't do anything about. You cannot control the change, but you can control how you deal with the change. Right. And I've heard you use the word loss. So in a sense, do you have to be a grief counselor along with a vision loss coach? You know, that's a very interesting question. I always say to people, I am no psychologist. I am no, you know, like I'm no expert in psychology or sociology. All I'm doing here is using my my lived experience or my lived experience to help you out. So I will not sit here and say, I'm giving you professional advice. I'm giving you lived advice. Right. I understand that. I appreciate the distinction, but it almost feels to me like that's part of what you have to deal with, whether you are trained or licensed for it or not. Yes, you're right. I mean, sometimes you don't have a choice because, you know, they ask you the tough questions. You're not, you just can't sit there and say, well, I'm no expert. I don't know. You have to find a way because if for any reason they feel that Oh no, this lady can't really help me. That's I've lost I've lost them. I've lost the battle. Right. So, because I, as as their coach, you have to develop and maintain that trust. Yeah, it's all about trust. It's all about them believing in me and I have to find ways to motivate and encourage them. Right. Well, that's that's uh something I've heard from other people and it's uh, it's a credit to the way that you do things that you appreciate it and uh, and try to work with that. So just as a reminder, y'all, I'm, I'm speaking with Donna Jodhan, award-winning vision loss coach, author, advocate, recent law school graduate, and host of Ask Donna and Dining, for, Dining with Donna. And you can find her at sterlingcreations.ca or donnajodhan.com. So I'd like you to talk a little bit about your writing. How did you get started writing mysteries? And what has been your your process? How have you gotten from from story creation to putting the words down to turning them into audiobooks and even in-person events? You know, I got to give credit to my mom, mom and dad and my granny. Because, see, Ever since I could think about it as a, as a little child, they always used to tell me stories at night, audio stories, would make up all kinds of stories, believe me. And I enjoyed it. 
And I think this is where my foundation um, was born because of them telling me stories. And I have, I like to say, I have a very vivid imagination, a very creative imagination. And these are, this is how my audio mysteries were born. I decided to, to, you know, develop a character called Detective DJ. That, that's my initials, DJ. And I, from there, it just took off. I just enjoyed writing these things and then putting them into audio form. And Detective DJ and the Crime Crashers, we were born, and that's how we did it. We have three seasons of Detective DJ and the Crime Crushers, which you can get at donnajodhencom slash store dot html there are even four samples free samples that you could download and listen to them and i also have a christmas 12 days of christmas box set it's pure imagination that went into this creation there are 12 episodes and it's just imagination it's you know i hope people enjoy it well people have said they have enjoyed it it it's I don't know how else to put it. Just pure imagination, all about Santa Claus, all about Santa has cousins, Santa Stoyan and Santa Stefan and Sandy Claus is his brother and so on, on and on we go. And I think I've been able to enjoy putting these audios together. I've really, really enjoyed it. And I have plans to write two more um, 12 Days of Christmas box sets and the fourth season. This one will be called Detective DJ Goes International. And yes, yes. Oh, I like it. I like it. So, so is Detective DJ's alter ego, Donna, going to be traveling to far-flung places to do research? Is that the plan? Well, she'll do her research virtually because she can't really travel. Well, one of the one of the stories will be based in London, England, where where I have visited a few times, and um, maybe one in Hawaii. I visited Hawaii, but I have to do a lot of my research from my computer. So, yeah, right, right. End of the imagination. So you never felt any hesitation. You never thought. You know, what if they don't like them? You just thought, hey, I enjoy doing this, so I'm going to do it. Is my understanding that correctly? That's correct. I enjoy doing it. So you know what? I just hope you like it. I enjoy doing it. I recorded it, put it together. In fact, I was talking to my um, associate this afternoon, just explaining to him what is going to be on the drawing board for next year. And he's, he's waiting to get my recording. And then he'll put music to it. All right, we need to stop right here just so we can make sure we emphasize. This is a very important point, y'all. She did not base her decision on whether or not she thought people would like her work. She did not base her decision on whether or not people would buy her work, even though it is for sale. Uh, Her decision was, I enjoy doing this, so I'm going to do this, and I'm going to share it with other people to bring joy into their lives. Now, that to me is huge because 
there are just way too many great, talented people in the world, uh, bloggers, podcasters, authors, etc., who have done wonderful, amazing work, but aren't happy with their work because they haven't sold their work. They forgot that it was supposed to be about the joy of the event or the the thrill of the experience or just, I don't know how the heck to do this. I'm, so my curiosity is going to help me to figure it out. So I really appreciate you mentioning that and allowing me to emphasize it because I think that's one of the most important things you've said today. Well, once you enjoy what you do, that is 80% of the battle one. And I truly enjoyed what I did. And you know what? It, it's, it's good because they're up there. If you want to buy it, you can buy it. If you don't, you don't. But I enjoyed it. Right. And I love how you, you kind of got around the, uh, the, I don't want to give too much of your, of your detective stories away, but basically you kind of got around the roadblock a lot of people would have put for themselves by having a, a detective who works with a lot of other people who aren't disabled. But the detective DJ is the one who puts it all together and the one who gives you the, the, the solution at the end of the stories. That's correct. But, but my first three seasons, it's me working with um, others. And, you know, we put it all together. It's, it's all an imaginary team. Yeah, right. Now, I have friends who have challenged me. They're like, Max, you're a very good storyteller. You should do fiction. And I keep telling them, no, not as long as I, ha- I still have. Uh, I still have actual stories from my actual life to tell because fiction is hard. Yeah, it is. Uh, yeah. So I have a friend. Her name is Adriana Gavazzoni. She's a wonderful author of legal thrillers. And I asked her once, what does she do when she gets into a struggle with a plot issue? I said, what if a character isn't doing what you want them to do? She said, oh, I just killed him off. So <laughs> she, says, if they're not, she says, if they're not going to behave, they're out of here. So. I, I love I love Adriana. She's one of my most most one of my longest friends and one of my most wonderful supporters. At, and her website is agavazzoni.com for any of y'all who want to check her out. But uh, so, what does you know? How does uh, Donna deal with writer's block, with plot issues, with uh, possibly wanting to tell a story and maybe not having the right words or the right descriptive images in your head for it? You know, I'm blessed in that I've not really suffered from, you know, um, writer's block very, very often. But what I do is I try to relax. I try to just sit quietly and or just lie in bed quietly and, and just think about it. Think of, of ways to get things going. I've never really had too much difficulty imagining and creating you know but like i said it's all based on pure imagination okay so basically about half my audience just decided that they hate you because you've never really had writer's block uh, <laughs> but it, but you did share with them how to get over it through through relaxation and uh and meditation and calming your mind and that MICC thing we shared, you shared with them earlier, I'm sure helps in this area as well. Yep, it does. I mean, like I said, I'm very, very willing to talk to anybody about my mental stretch. I 
it works. Trust me, it works like magic. You know, and I think it's one way to get over the writer's block. Right, right. So there's just one last thing I really wanted to ask you about, and it's when did you uh, when did you get into cooking, and what possessed you to decide you wanted to do a cooking podcast? You know, that's a good question. Um, throughout the COVID, because my mom doesn't live close to me, she's in another country. Um, Mom used to coach me over the phone. And I would say, Mom, how do you cook this? How do you do this? And patient, 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 Mom, she would tell me. I would write it down. And then I would go and experiment with it, or I would share it with friends. And and then I kind of thought, I'm liking this. I want to share it with other people. And, and I've said it on my Dining with Donna shows is that it's a way to create an imagine. You get into the kitchen, nothing is wrong. Everything you do is right because it's what you do and what you create. It's yours. So you could, you know, subtract from a recipe, make up your recipe, extend the recipe, add to you can do so many things. Again, it's using your imagination and your creativity and then i thought okay i have these mysteries i'm going to go now and turn this into an audio show and my good friend victor guvia he has always you know been very encouraging to me he he hosts my ask donna show and my dining with donna show like when i say host he he posts it and circulates it. And I I really enjoy my, my dining with Donna show. I really do. Yeah. And I like I say, I, I think the the part at the end where you help with uh with with kitchen mistakes is uh really helpful and uh and it's not one of those things that's just helpful to a visually impaired listener. There are things in there that I believe there are sighted people Googling every day that they would know if they listened to Dining with Donna. It, it's, you know what? It's for everybody. You know, there's, there are tips in there as to how to, um, if, if you don't, if you run out of butter, for example, what you can do like substitutions, you want to save time. There are tips in there as well. Um, you want to be able to be able to, peel onions without crying because you know you know what onions do there's lots of tips in there for every little thing and as time goes on i'll be sharing tips not just about the kitchen but there are going to be tips on how to deal with things like stains on your carpets how to deal with the you know cleaning your card things like that so it, it's for everybody and and the important thing is, well, I just happen to be vision impaired. So what? You know, I have these <laughs> tips to share. Yeah. 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 Now I know on your Ask Donna show that you actually take questions from people about issues with their their life, their vision loss. And so how does somebody get a hold of Donna if they want to pose a question or uh possibly have a an email? 
exchange with you to dis- to come to a question that you could then answer on your show. You can write to me at askdonna on blindlife at gmail.com. So that's A-S-K-D-O-N-N-A-O-N-B-L-I-N-D-L-I-F-E at gmail.com. So it's askdonna on blindlife, all one word, at gmail.com. All right. Well, I wanted to make sure we got that out there because I I think there probably are people who have questions. One of the things I like to say to people who meet me and people who've known me is I would much rather answer an awkward question than to deal with the problems that come if they decide they want to guess at the answers. So I want to make, wanted to make sure we, we make it easy for them to reach out and ask Donna questions that may end up being future episodes of the show. Definitely. And I do thank you for that, Max. Uh, it's just part of being a good host. You know, you, you invite people over to your house. You want them to feel welcome. So uh, so I think we've covered pretty much everything that I planned on and maybe a couple of things I wasn't planning on, but that part's probably par for the course on my show. <laughs> uh, what are some thoughts you'd like to leave people with as we finish up here? Reach for the stars and reach for the sky. Don't be afraid to reach out. And there are always ways for you to, you know, attain what you want. The sky is the limit. Don't limit yourself to saying, oh, because I'm, I have, I'm blind or I have a vision impairment. I can't do this and I can't do that. Can't is take that out of your, of your vocabulary. Always strive to make things better than possible. I think it's kind of uh, kind of uh, fitting how many times you've talked about uh, about finding workarounds and finding solutions because I am known for telling people that I've accomplished what I have because I decided to find solutions instead of making excuses. So it's been really cool to watch you talk about about finding workarounds as you call them as often as you have. So. Uh, I really appreciate everything you've shared with me and my audience. And I want to thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for giving me this opportunity. I really, really appreciate it. And like as my, my parting comment is don't complain. Don't explain. This is what the late uh, Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II always used to say. Don't complain and don't explain. All right. Well, she had 90 years of lived experience. She ought to know. <laughs> she did. Yeah, she did. She did. So we had another great conversation with a wonderful lady, uh, Donna. And, you know, it's just interesting when you talk to somebody who has lived with vision loss and without vision loss and had to adjust to it more than once in her lifetime but it doesn't seem to have made her bitter or caused her to think less of her future or the people around her. It just seems to have been another part of her life that she had to adjust to. And when people who have vision loss get together, we quite often talk about how uh, that we're not really any different than the rest of the world. It's just that our challenges our adversities are different. 
And in most cases, vision loss is a much more obvious challenge than, say, stress in a marriage, stress in a job, managing time with family, children, dogs, work, and cats, too. I'm not prejudiced. So, <laughs> so uh, you know, I love how she talks about it. And then, you know, she kept going back to the idea of workarounds, how as a blind person, she has had to figure out ways to get things done, which is finding solutions, which y'all know I'm known for, and teaching other people how to find these solutions, which I just love that, that, that one of the skills that she teaches her clients along with patience and acceptance is problem solving. And that kind of goes to something that I have wanted to tell and have told a lot of people in the business world that as a rule, people with disabilities are creative problem solvers. That's one of the assets we bring to the table because we have had to be. If we weren't able to come up with creative ways to get things done, a lot of times we would just be left out. So uh, I wish more employers knew about that. I wish more business owners knew about that. And it was good that she got to talk a bit about accessibility and inclusion and how even now there's a lot of things that could be improved to make the visually impaired and other people's, people with disabilities feel more included. And the great thing is, is when people make a product, a service, or a website more accessible, they're also making it easier for everybody else to use. And when you make your products and services more useful, you make them more valuable. You make people want to spend more time on your website. Just think about this for a minute. As much as we are all dependent on Facebook, if Facebook were less aggravating to use on a regular basis, would you use it more? I believe most of us would. Would there be all these posts about people leaving Facebook? Would there be all these posts about how to divorce yourself from Facebook? No, they probably wouldn't. But there are a lot of things that go into the fact that, a lot, that many of us just don't enjoy Facebook or even some of the other social media platforms. It's the same way with websites. So I really enjoyed getting to know Donna, and I'm looking forward to working with her and trying to get more people to know about her books, her audio dramas, her in-person performing mystery events, which will be starting up again soon now that we seem to be coming out of COVID. And uh, who knows, maybe we can even discuss turning her mysteries into a play. I think that would be really cool to have some of Detective DJ and the Crime Crushers on a stage near you. But hey, those are the kind of things that occur to me. All right. I appreciate your time. I know that there are a lot of things you could be doing now. And uh, the fact that you decide to spend a few minutes with me whenever I have these new interviews, I just can't tell you how much I appreciate that. Just knowing that you're out there listening and paying attention and that uh, worrying that I would disappoint you if I didn't continue to show up a lot of days, that is really what keeps me going. So thank you. I'd like to mention a couple other friends of the podcast. These are not sponsors, but they have provided some needed products and I would love to uh, support them in return. These will be affiliate links. So if you visit their website, 
or shop for their products, I will receive a little bit of money from it. The first is Crystal Creek Organics, which is crystalcreekorganics.com. And they have provided me with CBD oil over the past year or so. There have been times where even with the CBD oil, I still had trouble getting out of bed. But there have been so many more times where I was able to continue my quality of life and meet most of my obligations because of the CBD gummies, the CBD sublinguals, and the topical creams that they sell. So I hope y'all will check them out. And then also I want to mention Dano's Seasoning. They make a gluten-free, low-sodium, no-salt, great-tasting seasonings that you can use in your your cooking or at the table to replace the salt and pepper. You really would not believe how much salt we take in during our diet. And as my good friend Tyler Watson, who was recently on the podcast, likes to say, there's no reason for it. Uh, People can get the wonderful, great-tasting flavors they need from Dano's. And it's only, it's less than 50 milligrams of sodium per quarter teaspoon. There's no salt. It's gluten-free. So I do hope y'all will check out Dano's seasoning. I Honestly, they have given me the gift of giving my brother back having good tasting food. Yeah, I messed that line up big time, I know. But he's an arrhythmia survivor. We really have to watch his salt. He really has to watch his salt. And this product allows him to enjoy food. And that's a big thing in his life. So I hope you, if you have a family member that needs the low sodium or you just feel like it would be a great thing to do this time of year to get it to restart your restart yourself as you go into the holiday season, then I hope you'll check out Daniel's seasoning. All right, that's pretty much it. If you need somebody to help you get exposure by teaching you to do interviews and booking you on podcasts, more than happy for you to reach out to me. We can have a conversation. I can tell you how I do it, why I do it, and tell you what you can expect from doing it. It is the most fun, most energizing way I know to get my name out there by being interviewed on other people's shows. So I hope you will consider that. And, oh, yeah, just one last mention here. I recently started as a member of the A11 IANTS team for AudioEye.com. I also have started writing blog posts on accessibility, technology, and other things having to do with vision loss for their website, audioeye.com. So I hope you will visit their website, check out my article. There will be a post coming about that for my website very soon. But hey, until then, I want to thank you again. I really appreciate your support. And I want you to do what you can to keep yourself safe. Thank you. Too many times we stand aside and let the water slip away to what we put off to tomorrow has finally come today. So don't stand upon the shoreline and say you're satisfied. Choose to chance the rapids and dare to dance the tide.